Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour. Thank you for tearing yourselves away from the gorgeous sunshine outside to join us this evening. I I promise we will make it all worth it for you. Some really big stories tonight. The government, again, have been found to have broken the law and we have a great guest on that. One of the people who took them to court. I'm, of course, joined by Dahlia. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you, Michael. I've been sunbathing all during my lunch break today and I just feel immediately so much better. Like my, the vitamin mm. D has been like absorbed and my, my body's missed it. My body has missed it. <laughs> it's incredible. Everyone looks amazing. <laughs> Everyone's smiling. Um, but most importantly, you guys are here watching Tisky Sour. The government have lost their second case in the High Court surrounding contracts issued during the coronavirus pandemic. Back in February, Matt Hancock was found to have acted unlawfully by failing to publish details of contracts for PPE. Today, Michael Gove was found to have broken the law when he granted a contract to the PR firm Public First to test COVID-19 messaging without putting it out to tender. Now, the company directors had close associations with both Gove and Dominic Cummings, and the judge today ruled this meant the granting of the contract gave rise to apparent bias. Now, as in most of these cases, the defence on the part of the government was to say, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. How could we have been expected to follow usual procedures? There was a pressing priority which overrode um, really those normal processes. Now, the judge in question, Mrs Justice O'Farrell, did recognise some of those points in her ruling. She didn't say those arguments were completely ridiculous. Let's go to the the relevant part. Um, So she said today, the fair-minded and informed observer would have appreciated that there was an urgent need for research through focus groups on effective communications in response to the COVID-19 crisis and that those research services were required immediately. They would have appreciated that it was vital that the results and conclusions from the research were reliable and that Mr. Cummings was uniquely placed, given his experience and expertise, to form a rapid view on which organisation might best be able to deliver those urgent requirements. His professional and personal connections with Public First did not preclude him from making an impartial assessment in this regard. So she's saying, to some degree, the government's argument is reasonable. However, The judge ruled that even in these exceptional circumstances, that did not justify only considering one single company to do this job. So Justice O'Farrell said the defendant's failure to consider any other research agency by reference to experience, expertise, availability or capacity would lead a fair minded and informed observer to conclude that there was a real possibility or a real danger that the decision maker was biased. Now, that's the basis on which this was ruled to have been a decision made unlawfully. Now, the ruling is specifically against Michael Gove, specifically for the minister of, as he um, was and is, minister for the cabinet office. But of course, Dominic Cummings was central to that decision to award these contracts to public first. They were worth £560,000. Now, Dominic Cummings, now a very active Twitter user, now he's outside of Downing Street, responded to the ruling almost immediately today on Twitter. Um, He said of the ruling, In 2014, I explained how SW1 programs dysfunctional and poor performance. Most big things on COVID were here, including today's issues. Destructive feedback between EU procurement, judicial review, Whitehall management. We're saying, me with all my foresight, I wrote in 2014 how judicial reviews into the procurement process 
is a problematic thing. It's dysfunctional. I'm not just saying this opportunistically. I wrote it in my blog in 2014. He goes on. In the judicial review summary, they say there is no suggestion of actual bias, but instead of telling officials to focus on the worst crisis since 1945, a disease which was doubling in two to three days, I should have told officials to focus on creating a Potemkin paper trail to negate campaigners claiming appearance of bias. Now, he goes on to say that if he'd focused on the paperwork instead of making immediate decisions, he would have allowed more people to die. He also suggests that this judgment will lead to worse decision-making in the future. So he says, the court is telling SW1, so that's Westminster, even in a crisis like a once a century pandemic, your real focus should always be the paper trail. There is already a huge destructive problem and today's judgment will make it even worse. If COVID doesn't justify focus on outcomes over process, nothing will. He's making a very uh, clear defense of his actions. He's saying that the court's judgment will just mean the bureaucrats, civil servants and politicians are more interested in making a paper trail and doing paperwork than in saving lives. Is that a good argument? Well, earlier today, I spoke to Julian Morm, founder of the Good Law Project, which brought the case against Michael Gove. Well, it certainly should lead to more accountable government, shouldn't it? I mean, in any normal country, in any functioning, um, mature democracy, you would expect a finding uh, by a high court that uh, a particular contract was awarded, it would appear to a, a neutral observer through reasons of favouritism, uh, to mean that heads roll. Um, but unfortunately, as your viewers, listeners will know, we are no longer a sort of normal functioning democracy. Will it lead to more paperwork? I, I don't think the answer to that is uh, necessarily yes, but I suppose I attack really the premise of the question. Um, what Dominic Cummings is saying in those tweets essentially is, um, look, this is public money, not my money, but nevertheless, you can leave it to me uh, to make the right decisions. You can trust me not to give contracts to my friends. You can trust me not to give contracts to people who for example, I think might do party political work on the public dime. And I have a problem with that predicate. So I don't think one gets to Dominic's question. It's not really a, uh, a balance between speed and paperwork. This is public money. And he needs to explain, Michael Gove needs to explain to those who whose public money it is, uh, taxpayers, why they have spent it in the way in which we have. And, 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 and that's fundamentally what this case is about. Do you accept at all the, the premise that because it was a pandemic, it was a, a global emergency, some of the usual rules could go out the window? Do you think that if they had followed all the rules, it potentially could have taken longer, but it still would have been worth it because um, not being as transparent as you'd like is such a grave issue that that should override other, other considerations? Or do you just think this whole, this whole issue of counterposing speed and paperwork or legality, I suppose, is just a misnomer. Do you think that's that's just a misunderstanding on the part of Cummings? There is a balance to be struck here. You know, if you're sophisticated and thoughtful about these things, uh, what you do is you look at the fact pattern and you try and behave in a responsible way, having regard um, to it. So it's not good enough just to go and buy whatever you want 
because staff's urgent. And, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of ways of making that point. One is by looking at the 350 million pounds of money that we spent on PPE through placing contracts with PESFIX, which is in the VIP lane. I mean, we got very little. It's not even clear we got any usable PPE. So, you know, there is always a need. There is always a value to process. And I think uh, I would also say the pandemic justifies short-circuiting process so far as is necessary to short-circuit process in order to achieve the result that the demands of the pandemic dictates. It doesn't mean you can throw the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't mean you don't have to follow any process at all. And fundamentally, you know, the law is a very sophisticated mechanic through which you interrogate whether those who abandoned elements of process to arrive at outcomes got that balancing exercise so wrong uh, as to be unlawful. Um, I mean, of course, that's not really what this case is about, because in this case, uh, the judge said that no one gave any thought to whether or not uh, someone else could bid for that contract. No one looked at um, whether there was any time saving through appointing public first. The judge points out that there were other agencies who were already working for government, rejects government's contention that um, public first uh, wouldn't need to be briefed, explains that public first, in fact, did need to be briefed to carry out this work in the same way as might YouGov have needed to be briefed. So, again, I mean, it's a superficially attractive argument. It doesn't stand up to analysis and it doesn't bear examination on, on the facts. You know, these are intricate, nuanced points, but they are what real life decision making looks like even in the midst of the pandemic, especially where you are spending public public money, and especially, especially where you are spending public money on your friends. And, you know, there's no dispute between Dominic Cummings, Michael Gove on the one hand and me on the other, uh, that Public First were friends of Dominic Cummings and associates of Michael Gove. Could you explain what it actually means for the, the High Court to have ruled that, the, that Michael Gove and his department have acted unlawfully because you know lots of people hear this is he's acted unlawfully why isn't he going to jail why isn't he subject to criminal sanctions so could you law for beginners i suppose explain the implications when a government department is guilty of having acted unlawfully if you're running a public law case on the grounds of bias you tend to ask the question whether there is apparent bias In other words, would a reasonable observer think that the contract uh, was awarded through favouritism? Because if you show apparent bias, uh, that leads to a finding that the contract was unlawful. If you're arguing in a different context, if you're trying to bring a criminal prosecution for, um, for example, misconduct in public office, you would have to show that there is actual bias Uh, We brought a public law case. One of the reasons we brought a public law case is because as members of sort of civil society rather than the police force, we don't have the power to compel the production of evidence by Dominic Cummings, by 
uh, Michael Gove uh, by number 10 because, you know, there's evidence too that number 10 was pushing for contracts to go to public first and Anbury. And because we can't compel the pr production of evidence, it's very difficult for us to get over the high hurdle of proving actual bias, proving misconduct in public office, which you have to prove sort of beyond reasonable doubt if you want to prove a criminal, if you want to prove that there's been a criminal offence committed. So no, no one goes to prison in consequence of this decision. There should, as I've already explained, be consequences. The effect is to expose yet another cabinet minister to have acted unlawfully in handling pandemic procurement. The project has a whole slate of cases. Um, it should cause uh, political embarrassment to government. It does make government look like what it is in the public sphere, which is um, irresponsible and law-breaking. But those are fundamentally political rather than legal costs attached to um, this decision. Jolion Morm, the founder of the Good Law Project. Dahlia, um, this is the second time we've been in this situation. The government have been found to have acted unlawfully in the High Court. They seem fairly confident that they can just brush these, these rulings off. They can say, look, it was a pandemic. Who cares what was legal and, and what wasn't? Of course, this is also not going to be the last time this happens. The Good Law Project have a bunch of other cases in the pipeline. Do you think this is going to start to cause problems for the government or or not? I, I suppose in a way, I, I really obviously respect what Jolly on Mormon is, is doing here, but many of the people who were very aggravated by this particular issue were also aggravated you know, about Brexit, a second referendum, political projects that kind of went nowhere. Do you, do you think this one is is different? Yeah, I mean, it depends, right? It depends if there are movements and an opposition that are going to make good on this. But, you know, I mean, the reason that the Tories can can brush it off, that the government can brush it off, is because, unfortunately, they hold immense power over the institutions that make up the state, right, formally and informally. So from, you know, having this massive majority in the Commons to, you know, very inappropriate proximity to establishment media to, you know, even even I would argue being able to actually govern the talking points in the remit of the opposition, unfortunately. Um, you know, this is a government that has been defined by its impunity. It's, you know, it's the character of Boris Johnson is that sense of, you know, impunity, of buffoonishness, of incompetence, uh, masked as kind of, you know, sort of wrapped up in this like uh, sort of, um, jingoistic, you know, old school form of public school colonial governor style, uh, uh, you know, reputation. Um, and, you know, the, the, the courts are probably one of the only, in the very few institutions that have, you know, albeit in quite a mealy mouthed way, you know, occasionally held the government to account, but often it's not done with that much enforcement. Um, but, you know, I think that Cummings is very smart uh, to turn this into a anti-bureaucracy point because, you know, there's certainly a point to be made that, you know, bureaucratization doesn't always mean accountability. Um, and it also, you know, kind of appeals to how much people hate bureaucracy in their own workplaces and how much they feel like it stops them from, do, you know, getting on with what they need to do. But that's all a distraction from what's, from the fact of what's going on here, which is that the government has used this pandemic to enrich their financial allies in a way that has cost 
a significant number of lives, I would argue. And, you know, the reason that we have um, such high rates of death deaths per capita, which, you know, I would argue is the highest of the countries that have kind of comparable economies to, to the UK, you know, it's not because of paperwork. It's because of bad decision making and bad messaging. It's the dithering. It's the locking down too late. It's the not making use of lockdowns to build proper infrastructure. It's, you know, the long trend of defunding the NHS and re directing resources away from patients and healthcare providers and towards sort of busybodying middle managers. You know, it's it's the lack of provisions for precarious workers to actually self-isolate um, if they need to self-isolate. It's, you know, and it's not only that, but it's it's the issues that actually come directly out of this very problem, this culture of impunity and corruption that lies at the heart of how this pandemic has been managed. And that falls at the feet of the government and particularly at the feet of Cummings. Um, and a big part of that is, you know, and why this court case is so relevant and why it's so sneaky for Cummings to kind of turn this into an anti-bureaucracy point is that it's specifically the doling out of essential contracts to private companies that do not have the records or the demonstrated ability to carry out these essential functions in the middle of a health crisis, whether that's providing free school meals or building a test and trace system. So the problem isn't just the outsourcing of, you know, essential functions that should be provided by the public sector to private companies who, you know, because of the logic of what a private company is, they will scrimp on resources, scrimp on what they actually provide for people and pocket the rest, as we saw with the school lunches fiasco. But it's even if we're going to act, even if we're going to outsource these functions, even if for whatever reason you win the argument on outsourcing, which I don't think is possible you at least have to outsource to companies that not just companies that you happen to have close connections to, but companies that actually have some evidence that they can carry out the project that you're outsourcing to them. And this is essentially a problem of the government. It's not a problem of bureaucracy. It's not a problem of urgency. It's a problem of the government looking at this pandemic, using that sense of emergency and urgency that it creates and seeing dollar signs or pound signs, I guess, for them and their mates. And that is enough. And it's also not only that, not only this momentary enrichment, but it's also them trying to use this as an opportunity to normalize the idea that essential services, especially those in social and health care, um, would be more efficient if they were outsourced. You know, it's to normalize the idea of outsourcing to private companies, these kinds of services that have traditionally been held, held by the state and held by the public sector. But unfortunately for the government, you know, the only thing that's worked in this entire pandemic, the only thing that has saved not only the government's ass, but our ass as well, is the vaccination program, which was led by the public sector. It was led by the NHS. So Cummings turning this into some kind of, you know, anti-bureaucratic, you know, we were putting people before paperwork kind of thing. It's a smart move, but it's a lie as a lot of the, you know, a lot of what comes out of this government is. And we need to hit back at that by emphasizing that the public sector knows how to get stuff done with people in mind and that the private sector, all the private sector knows how to do is hoard resource, resources for its shareholders and its owners at the expense of everyone else. And that's the main lesson from this pandemic, not this issue of, you know, paperwork or bureaucracy uh, as much as Cummings is trying to make it about that. Mm, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree with your take on, on the level of integrity Cummings has. Our next story is about the current situation with COVID-19. 
Now, the rise in COVID cases caused by the Delta variant, that's the variant first identified in India, means Britain now has the highest levels of COVID seen since February. There were 7,540 cases identified in the past 24 hours, pushing the seven-day average 66% higher than the previous week. Now, while that increase on the graph might look small compared to the January peak, we know how dramatically things can change when growth is exponential. So what can look like a, a little rise can actually be the start of what becomes an essentially very, very steep rise. That's how exponential growth works. We've, we should be used to, by now, the damaging effects that can have. Now, of course, what has been unclear up to this point is whether or not this rise in cases will lead to an increase in hospitalizations. Now, the hope here has been that because the vast majority of the people who are vulnerable to serious disease with COVID-19 have been vaccinated, therefore, we might have broken the link between cases and hospitalizations. There's obviously a good logic to that theory. Unfortunately, new reporting from the Financial Times suggests that is only partly the case. So while the vaccinations are stopping some cases translating into hospitalization, there's a significant section of them, it is not. Now, these graphs from the FT show hospital admissions by age group in the northwest of England, where the Delta variant is most prevalent. So it's on a log scale. That's why the y-axis says 5, 10, 20, 50, up to 500 instead of being linear, which would be 10, 20, 30. Now, on a log graph, a straight upward line means growth is exponential. And as you can see, among the 18 to 65 age group, there is exponential growth in terms of hospital admissions. So not just in cases, but in admissions. It's less steep than in January, but exponential growth is always very bad. And there are now 150 daily admissions or around 150 daily admissions of under 65s in the Northwest alone. As you can see, you know, the big relief um, is that in contrast, admissions are flatlining among people over 65. Now, this is all completely consistent with the idea that vaccines will break the chain between infection and hospitalizations. The problem at the moment is not everyone has been vaccinated. And of course, that's especially among the younger groups. That's why we're seeing hospitalizations among the younger groups, but not the older groups. Now, what should we take from all of this? Now, personally, I don't think we need to be alarmist. I think the vaccines seem to be very, very effective. The FT analysis, in fact, suggests that two doses of a vaccine are about 95% effective at preventing hospital admissions, even with this Delta variant. And one dose is upwards of 70%. So we do have a route out of all of this. The problem, not everyone's been vaccinated. And I think at times the government are acting a little bit as if they have been. Because those 150 daily admissions, it seems to me completely unnecessary because they are all likely people who, you know, they might have been vaccinated in three weeks' time anyway. So if they'd managed to not get infected for another three weeks, then they might not have ended up in hospital. And ending up with hospital in a hospital, even if you don't die, is really, really, it's a bad thing. Now, that's not to blame these people personally. There, there are all sorts of reasons why people will get COVID-19. Your kid goes to school. You know, you've gone and ate in a restaurant because the government told you it's fine to eat in a restaurant. What does frustrate me is the way this is discussed by the government and in the mainstream media. Because they still do suggest that the big problem when it comes to should we or should we not remove all restrictions on the 21st of June is whether or not hospitals will be overwhelmed. 
And that leads to paragraphs like this. This was from an article in the Times today. And it says, there is particular concern about the strain that unvaccinated people in their 30s could place on the health service if there is a surge in cases. While they are less likely to die than older patients, a government source told the Times that many of those admitted with the Indian variant need oxygen and spent at least two days in hospital. Now, that seems completely crazy to me. So a lot of relatively young people are going into hospital and potentially ICU. And the problem for the government isn't that young, healthy people are going into ICU. It's that, oh, we might need two days worth of oxygen. You know, they'll block some beds for a little while. It just seems a completely bizarre way of looking at it. The problem with 30-year-olds going into ICU is that, one, that's going to be an incredibly traumatic experience. But two, if you go into ICU with COVID-19, it's not like you get home and you're suddenly fine. This is a serious disease, which, if you get it seriously, is going to have quite long-term ramifications for you. So the idea that we only see this as a problem if the hospitals collapse, I just think is a really, really bizarre logic. And it's, from my perspective, why any rush out of the situation we're currently in would be probably mistaken, right? Why not hang outside when the sun is this bright? Why are we so obsessed with opening the nightclubs? Um, and I love nightclubs. Dahlia, I want to go to you. How worried are you about this new data we're seeing? I don't think that when we're evaluating the overall risks that this virus represents, when we're evaluating, you know, the data on the number of new infections and things like that, I don't think that we should only count hospitalizations. We know that there are many people, many young people who, you know, are the ones out going to work, who are particularly the ones in precarious work where it's much harder to self-isolate if you need to, and are also the ones that are last to be vaccinated. You know, we know that there are many who have been infected. They were never hospitalized, so they won't be counted in that data. They either have had several months sort of robbed of them through long COVID or in case and in cases of people I know personally who have chronic conditions as a result of this virus. I, you know, one of my partner's friends um, has been diagnosed with diabetes in the aftermath of getting, you know, a young early 20s uh, kid, you know, who now has a lifelong condition as a result of this. And that's why, you know, I think that the opening of indoor spaces was just before we had, you know, especially like a lot of young people vaccinated. I mean, it was just a purely profit move, right? It's like we could feasibly all have, you know, the weather's nice. We could all feasibly eat outside, drink outside, enjoy public, you know, park spaces, do picnics and things like that. So we can still socialize and we can still get, you know, get that socializing that we haven't had for so long without actually opening up indoor spaces. The only reason behind that is because bars and businesses make a lot more money when indoor spaces open up because it's more clients, more customers that you can have um, at any one time. But it wasn't, that doesn't actually fulfill a social need necessarily. And it actually, you know, creates a level of risk that is just not really that necessary, given that, you know, the weather's nice enough for us to be outside. And we know that it's very unlikely to, tra you're very unlikely to transmit the virus if you are outside. But, you know, so that's why I'm personally avoiding indoor spaces for sure, um, especially because I haven't been vaccinated yet because I'm just so young. Um, but it also makes me, again, it makes me worry about, you know, 
this kind of vaccines are the silver bullet approach and messaging that this government has really pushed to basically cover up for the fact that they've been so bad at actually managing the crisis before we have this va- the vaccines. But the reason that it worries me is because it means that it's much harder to generate compliance with, you know, not necessarily another lockdown, but delays in easing particular parts of the lockdown or having to, you know, renege on certain parts of the easing of the lockdown, um, even if it turns out that we need it now or in the future. And it also means that it sends me the message that we still haven't built the infrastructure uh, to protect us from having to have any more debilitating lockdowns should either another pandemic come along or if some kind of variant means that the vaccines aren't as effective. So I think that this kind of like the fact that even though the data is a bit worrying and that, you know, for a lot of epidemiologists, they're saying, you know, we really need to revisit that 21st of June mark. It seems almost impossible for that to happen because such a narrative has been built up that, you know, on the 21st of June, we'll all be free. It's all over now that we have the vaccines. That has been so pushed by the government because it creates this kind of superhero narrative as if like, oh my God, like he fixed it, it's all done. But actually it could have those long-term public health consequences and it's just not necessary. We're so nearly there. We are so, so nearly there. It might be overstated to the extent to which vaccines are a silver bullet, but I mean, in a way they are they're fucking cool. Like when we're all vaccinated, so many of these problems are going to really slide away, which is why I think it just seems unnecessary to be having 30 year olds going into hospital when in literally like three weeks time, they'll all be vaccinated. We'll get there soon and the sun is out. So I actually don't think this choice is as sort of hard and grim as as previous ones. Um, Let's go on to our next story. The Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, has spent most of the past year twiddling his thumbs. When schools closed in January, it became apparent he'd done virtually nothing since the start of the pandemic to aid home learning. Kids still didn't have laptops after months. It was his job. He didn't do it. He was also silent when Rishi Sunak spiked a plan by the education czar to invest billions in catch-up programs. Right? This This is an education secretary who doesn't really like to do his job. However, this week, Williamson finally found a voice, finally found an issue which was worth him pricking up his ears and paying attention. And that was to express his outrage that a group of students decided to replace a picture of the Queen in their common room. Now, the story was revealed by the right-wing blog Guido Forks. They report... A committee of students from Magdalen's middle common room agreed by a substantial majority to take the portrait of Queen Elizabeth down from their wall and to explore replacing the portrait with art by or of other influential and inspirational people. One student claimed that patriotism and colonialism are not really separable. Another claimed the move was not about cancelling the Queen, saying the committee was not capable of doing so. This is about our communal space and making people feel welcome. I think that Guido were trying to pull out, you know, the most outrageous quotes there. They all actually sound very, very reasonable to me. Of course, patriotism and colonialism are not really separable. That doesn't mean we necessarily have to throw patriotism out the window, but we can't pretend there is no relationship between those two things. And this wasn't cancelling the Queen. More importantly than this, a middle common room, that's just it's a student union for people of a particular college who are master's students, essentially. Like it's going to be a few dozen people, like a hundred or so people. They've decided that they want to change the picture on their wall 
Like this is kind of, I can imagine it's above a pool table or something. Really, really not a significant decision. But Guido think it's a story. And Gavin Williamson thinks it's a story because in response to this article from Guido Fawkes, Gavin Williamson tweeted, Oxford University students removing a picture of the Queen is simply absurd. She is the head of state and a symbol of what is best about the UK. During her long reign, she has worked tirelessly to promote British values of tolerance, inclusivity and respect around the world. She was the head of the British empire. I, I'm not really sure if the values of tolerance, inclusivity and respect for everyone around the world were the values she represented. We also know that within the time span of her reign, the House of, of Windsor had a policy of not employing anyone from an ethnic minority. So uh, she's not necessarily the image of inclusivity that many people in the British establishment want to paint her as. But more importantly than that, this doesn't matter. This is not something that an education secretary should be commenting on. This is students deciding to replace one picture with another picture. It's like if I take down a picture of Prince and replace it with a picture of Dua Lipa in my bedroom, I am not cancelling Prince. I am changing the picture. Here, they are not cancelling the Queen. They are changing a picture. Gavin Williamson would much rather talk about this, about what's on the wall in a common room in Oxford than, you know, I don't know, the fact that he plunged thousands of young people's future into chaos during the A-levels grade saga when, you know, he decided to allow an algorithm that discriminated against people based on their, you know, where they live and what their class is um, to decide student grades. Or the fact that, you know, he's repeatedly tried to force teachers and students back into unsafe working environments without the proper precautions and only doing last minute U-turns when the trade unions get involved, or, you know, the abysmal decision to revoke free school meals and summer holidays in the middle of a pandemic. Um, or, you know, the fact that even things like the laptop scheme, which is so vital for so many kids in the middle of a pandemic where so many people are having to rely on remote learning, the fact that that hasn't been rolled out nearly to the scale that was either promised or that is needed, or he doesn't want to talk about the fact that, you know, 92% of 6,000 teachers that were polled said that he should resign. Um, so he doesn't have any confidence in the workers that are in the sector that he's responsible for. He would much rather talk about this than be challenged on any of those issues. So it's not surprising to me that, you know, he's coming out guns blazing because this is essentially a cheap shot to galvanize a base at the expense of a group of like maybe a few dozen students who don't have the means to defend themselves against the weight of an abusive tabloid media, um, which is, you know, the full weight of which we are currently seeing, and their own Secretary of Education essentially inciting a hate campaign against them. You know, this isn't a story. Like a tiny group of students have democratically decided what they want to do with their communal space. That is something they are perfectly entitled to do. Like, is that not the basis of like free speech and debate and democracy? These students had a debate, they had a discussion, they made a democratic decision. And what is essentially happening here is that the Secretary of Education is trying to punish students for taking down a picture of the head of state from their common room. Like, is that the mark of a democratic and a free society? Who's the snowflake here? Like, is that the mark of British values that are apparently so uniquely British and yet seem to be violated by the British state on a regular basis? And this tells me that, you know, this whole free speech moral panic where, you know, the biggest threats to free speech are like, you know, students and like, 
black people and trans people, you know, it's a complete Trojan horse for forcing people to accept and promote reactionary and bigoted views because the actual consensus for such views is shrinking. So they need to resort to whatever they can, especially these cheap tactics, to ensure that these positions and views still have to be represented in the mainstream, even though actually amongst the younger generation, the future generations, it doesn't hold that much cachet. And I think when it comes to how we should respond to this, it's really easy to kind of brush this off as like a silly distraction. And, and to an extent it is, you know, it's not like the most deep or serious thing, but it also, you know, it clearly isn't just that. It's like what we are seeing here is a petty but very vicious um, backlash to the fact that there is undoubtedly, um, you know, particularly, as I said, amongst young people, a growing radical anti-racist, anti-colonial consciousness that isn't just accepting, you know, mere representation. It's not saying that, oh, if you just represent us or diversify a bit, then we'll shut up. But it's actually rooting their understanding of anti-racism and anti-colonialism in systemic change of our economic and political systems. They are identifying the role that the British state, which includes the monarchy, I think there's a lot of thinking, you know, misinformed thinking that the monarchy just has symbolic power. No, they are like the British royal family is like one of the biggest landowners in the world. Like land is not a symbolic form of power. It's actually a very material form of power that is enforced with a lot of violence. But it's, it's essentially... A, a, a backlash against that changing anti-racist consciousness, because I am sure that the establishment media and the government were very shaken at those scenes last summer. Not only that young black and brown people were taking to the streets and demanding different kinds of change, but also that young white kids and you know even older white people in rural areas, parts where we don't normally see um, you know big turnout for anti-racist demonstrations, we even saw it there. And so instead of actually reckoning with that, they are basically just kind of picking fights with groups of people who can't defend themselves and caricaturing the people who are pushing for change. And they're enforcing top-down legislation to stop the conversation. And that's what we see in the measures to ban the use of anti-capitalist materials as, as teaching materials. And that's why, as silly as it might seem, we have to defend these students. Because first of all, this is a deliberate attempt here to basically spark a hate campaign that they don't deserve. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that. Um, it's incredibly destroying. It's incredibly destructive. I know many people who are still picking up the pieces of the mental health impacts of being the subject of a hate campaign led by the government and led by um, tabloid media. But it's also, this is also how the right is trying to galvanize power in the face of shifting terrain using these cheap tabloid style um, tactics. It's an attempt to delegitimize um, using the full power of the state and the media those who are pushing to change things. And we mustn't dismiss these students. We have to defend them because it's important that that delegitimization strategy for all of our sakes is not successful. And that at a time when so many powerful forces are trying to demonize them, we need to show that there is a large mass of us that are willing to back them up. Few more responses to this story. So there was a good um, statement actually from the president of Magdalen College. That's you know the employee who's who's, who's most powerful um, in the college. Now, in response to the story, um, she said, "Here are some facts about Magdalen College and Her Majesty the Queen. 
The Middle Common Room is an organization of graduate students. They don't represent the college. A few years ago, in about 2013, they brought a print of a photo of the Queen to decorate their common room. They recently voted to take it down. Both of these decisions are their own to take, not the college's. Maudlin strongly supports free speech and political debate and the MCR's right to autonomy. Maybe they'll vote to put it up again. Maybe they won't. Meanwhile, the photo will be safely stored. Being a student is about more than studying. It's about exploring and debating ideas. It's sometimes about provoking older generations. Looks like that isn't so hard to do these days. So if you are one of the people currently sending obscene and threatening messages to the college staff, you might consider pausing and ask yourself whether that is really the best way to show your respect for the Queen, or whether she'd be more likely to support the traditions of free debate and democratic decision-making that we are keeping alive at Magdalen. Now, I'm not necessarily sure if she can say, oh, the Queen is massively committed to democratic decision-making. She's, of course, a hereditary monarch and was the head of the British Empire. But in any case, the overall point, the defence of the students is is pretty good there. I, I thought that was, was a reasonable statement that gave some important context to this story. And one thing she definitely is right about is how easy it now is to provoke the older generation. Now, the decision by a few students to change a picture didn't just provoke a response from Williamson. It also got a whole front page in the Daily Mail. So they thought this was the most important story of the previous 24 hours. Outrageous Oxford students vote to axe Queen. It's important to note they didn't vote to axe the Queen. That would be they voted to abolish the Queen or something much more significant that will change the picture above the pool table or next to the coffee machine to a different picture. It's completely sensationalist clickbait head headline. I want to go now to someone who probably should have known better. Um, Andy Burnham was asked about this on LBC, and I thought his answer was really goddamn embarrassing. He's being interviewed by Nick Ferrari. Let's take a look. Noting that your great city has some tremendous universities, and you yourself went to the other place, a word on Oxford University students deciding to take down a portrait of the Queen because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Right, well, God, I just—I mean, I, you know, I can't re really relate to that if I'm if I'm honest. You know, I think this kind of these kind of gestures are, are getting a bit out of hand, uh, if, if I'm honest, Nick. I mean, I don't support that. Um, you know, we are all, I think, always uh, should respect the Queen, Indeed. but particularly now, given things that have happened uh, in, in the last few, few yeah. months. So, no, I don't support that. You know, I, you know let, let's, let's get a sense of proportion and a bit of, a bit of uh, respect back. People can air their views, but those kind of gestures, I think, are divisive, actually. They just divide people. And, um, and I, I don't think uh, they, they, they achieve much, to be honest. Well said, Andy. Come on. Like, for a start, that's a lie. He says, I can't really relate to this. You were in university as a socialist, right? I'm, I'm sure the idea that you didn't want the queen above your coffee machine or your pool table, you, you might not agree. You can definitely relate to that. Come on, this, this is not a, a complex point. You know, it, it's not alien. You must know some Republicans in your life, even if you're not one. I mean, probably he is one. Come on, let's face it, right? But he won't admit it because he wants to be leader of the Labour Party and ultimately the Prime Minister. So, so he's got to keep up this pretense that he's really supportive of the Queen. The most ridiculous part of that answer, though, was Andy Burnham saying, let's get a sense of proportion. He is a senior Labour politician, mayor of Manchester, and he is telling... Nick Ferrari, that he condemns people changing a picture in their common room for a different picture. And he's saying it's other people who don't have a sense of proportion. Give me a break. 
You know, Andy Burnham has had a good run, right? He's had a good run over the past few weeks. He's made some decent arguments, made some good stands against the government. But going on national radio and telling students they need to get a sense of proportion for changing one poster to another poster, it's completely, completely bizarre. Now, you might say, look, oh, the question posed by Nick Ferrari, maybe Andy Burnham didn't quite get how insignificant this was. I, I presume he did. I mean, this was huge on last night's news. So that, that was this morning. This story broke last night. And also, there's no harm in an interview in saying, so, Nick, you're saying they voted to take down a picture. Where was the picture? You know, you can say, look, I would have left the picture up, but I'm not going to condemn a bunch of students for changing a poster. It's, it's frankly very, very embarrassing. Andy Burnham's trying to put himself forward as sort of like, I'm the reasonable leader guy who could actually challenge the establishment. And I'm not just going to grovel on my knees to try and make royalists think that I'll do everything they possibly ask. I mean, it's cowardice. It's, it's cowardice. It's pandering. It's the easy way out. And I think that he needs to really think about what his pathway to power is and think about the role that people who have experienced the brute force of the state, particularly during empire, the role that those people are going to play in his pathway to power, and maybe should reflect a little bit on what he owes them. This would have been such an easy conversation. All he needed to do was say, look, I'm not here to talk about what a few dozen students do with their decor um, in their university common room. I'm here to talk about X, Y, Z things. But instead, what he's doing, and I, and I have to bring this back to my own personal experience of being a student and having the full weight. Like, I cannot explain to you what it must feel like for those students to see that front page of the Daily Mail saying that they have voted to axe the Queen. Like, that is incredibly inflammatory disgusting language. And I dread to think what those students' email boxes, I dread to think what is in those things right now. And Andy Burnham has added to that pylon with Nick Ferrari. So, you know, what's whose side are you on? It's disgusting. It's just, it's pandering. It's cowardice. It's unimaginative. And it just tells me that he doesn't really have the tools to deal with the terrain that a lot of these issues are being fought on. Um, and I go back to the thing that I said about how, you know, in many ways it seems silly and in many ways, and it is silly in many ways, but underpinning it is a very serious um, difference in ideology and a very serious gener intergenerational um, shift that is happening. And I don't think Andy Burnham wants to be uh, on the wrong side of it. And I think even if he wanted to stay neutral or even if he wanted to kind of, you know, distance himself from it. Um, there was a very easy way to do that. You know, Andy Burnham knows how to deflect. I'm sure he's had his media training and he actively chose to join in what must be an incredibly terrifying um, moment for a few students who should feel able to participate in the democratic processes of their university without feeling that they might be exposed by the Daily Mail, by Guido Fawkes, by their own government. You rightly point out the the issues with the, the head of the college's statement. I think the fact that the head of the college came out and defended those students shows us, you know, that we've come a little bit further ahead. Because when we were doing that work in 2015 around the Rose Moss Fall campaign, the chancellor of the university called up a radio station and said that if we don't like it here, we should go to China um, because we don't value free speech or, you know, we should go somewhere else if we don't like it here. So, you know, the fact that, the, that yeah, I'm not wow, even Wow, I did not know that. Wow. Chris Patterson, who, who is, by the way, was the last colonial governor of Hong Kong, 
who was the mm. chancellor of Oxford University, called up a radio station. It was like, if the students don't like it here, they should go somewhere else. Pro- many problems that that statement might have. I'm glad that she actually said that because I'm sure that will be much more relief to those students. If you are enjoying the show and if you usually um, enjoy our shows and you have not already become a supporter, please do consider doing so. We ask our viewers for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. Um, if you're up for that, please do go to devaramedia.com slash support if you are already a supporter. Thank you so much. We really, really do appreciate it and it makes all of this possible. Our final story for the evening. When fans booed England players taking the knee last weekend, a new front was opened in Britain's interminable culture wars. But while culture wars often involve tabloids and Tory ministers taking aim at anonymous students, this time the right have picked a stronger opponent and they might come to regret it. England manager Gareth Southgate on Tuesday released a really brilliant statement defending the right of his players to protest, the right of of his players to take symbolic action such as taking the knee at the beginning of matches. In the process, he also put forward a vision of the country and of progressive patriotism that I think will probably be quite scary actually to England's noisy reactionaries. He put forward a very strong argument, which is to say, you know, all of these people who who boo people for being anti-racist, that's not acceptable. You're the past, you're going to lose. Now, it's quite a lengthy essay. So I'm just going to take you through some of the key parts, though it is worth, worth reading all of it. Now, in terms of a defense of the right of England players to express opinions and campaign on social issues, Southgate says, Our players are role models, and beyond the confines of the pitch, we must recognise the impact they can have on society. We must give them the confidence to stand up for their teammates and the things that matter to them as people. I have never believed that we should just stick to football. I know my voice carries weight, not because of who I am, but because of the position that I hold. At home, I'm below the kids and the dogs in the pecking order, but publicly, I am the England men's football team manager. I have a responsibility to the wider community to use my voice, and so do the players. It's their duty to continue to interact with the public on matters such as equality, inclusivity and racial injustice while using the power of their voices to help put debates on the table, raise awareness and educate. And that statement, I mean, we've talked about Gareth Southgate earlier this 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 week as well. His defense of his players is really, really spot on. It's exactly right. And this claim that they have the right to speak out about their political opinions and social issues, I think is really, really important because there will be lots of people saying, I'll just get on with the football, right? Why should they have a loud voice in politics and social issues? They should just get on with the football and, and let other people do politics. Now, the problem with that, argument is that well yeah you know footballers they're very very wealthy you know they're, they're going to be in probably the richest um you know one percent well they're definitely going to be in the richest probably 0.1 percent of people in this country at the moment but what's important about footballers is that they are one of the few industries which is dominated by people from working class backgrounds and where there is really strong representation from people from ethnic minorities right and and so that is why i think they have been coming out with much more progressive positions than people in other industries so when people say, you know, you should only believe someone when they say footballers shouldn't have a voice. If they also say Tim Martin, the billionaire owner of, of Weatherspoon, shouldn't have a voice. Or if they say Piers Morgan, he's just a, a private school educated TV star. Why should he have political opinions? If people only think that people in these industries which are dominated by posh white men should have opinions, then you should be somewhat suspicious 
of the ends they are trying to pursue. And that's why Gareth Southgate's defence of, of footballers speaking out on the issues they care about, I think, is super, super important. Now, another big part of this piece, and what I think was probably equally important, was Gareth Southgate talking about patriotism. Now, this is, you know, it probably goes without saying, but this is, you know, this is key because he is the manager of the England team. So he, he, he has actually a big, a big role in shaping what patriotism means. Now, he sort of says personally what it means to him. So he says, for me, personally, my sense of identity and values is closely tied to my family and particularly my granddad. He was a fierce patriot and a proud military man who served during World War II. The idea of representing queen and country has always been important to me. We do pageantry so well in Britain and growing up, things like the Queen's Silver Jubilee and royal weddings had an impact on me. He goes on, because of my granddad, I've always had an affinity for the military and service in the name of your country, though the consequence of my failure in representing England will never be as high as his. My granddad's values were installed, instilled in me from a young age, and I couldn't help but think of him when I lined up to sing the national anthem before my first international caps. Now, here he's basically saying, look, uh, my vision of England, what pride means to me, is one that is quite traditional. It's It's one that is in line with many of the older generations of, of this country. It's one which is you know, quite likely to be endorsed by the Daily Mail, for example. He's saying, look, this is my patriotism. It's not particularly subversive. But what he does say, which is incredibly important, is that this doesn't have to be everyone's vision of patriotism. And this vision of the country should never be rammed down anyone's throats. Right. So on that, he says, for many of that younger generation, your notion of Englishness is quite different from my own. I understand that too. I understand that on this island, we have a desire to protect our values and traditions as we should, but that shouldn't come at the expense of introspection and progress. So he's saying, look, all you people that say, you know, taking the knee at the beginning of a football match, that's anti-English, you're disrespecting our traditions. That's ridiculous. I, I share a lot of the traditions you're talking about. I mean, this is Gareth, I, I have a very different idea of the nation to Gareth Southgate, but in the voice of Gareth Southgate, I share lots of the idea of, of ideas of the nation that you have. But I also understand we have to be incredibly accepting of other notions of, of, of what the nation should stand for. Very, very persuasive argument. And finally, from, from the essay, I, I want to show you, and what I think is probably most, what, most notable, what really stands out is how Southgate is, is willing to take a stand and face down bigoted fans who harass his players. So he says there, why would you tag someone in on a conversation that is abusive? Why would you choose to insult somebody for something as ridiculous as the color of their skin? Why? Unfortunately for those people that engage in that kind of behavior, I have some bad news. You're on the losing side. It's clear to me that we are heading for a much more tolerant and understanding society. And I know our lads will be a big part of that. It might not feel like it at times, but it's true. The awareness around inequality and the discussions on race have gone to a different level in the last 12 months alone. I am confident that young kids of today will grow up baffled by old attitudes and ways of thinking. We are, I think, really, really lucky to have someone as, as thoughtful of this who is manager of, of England, because I think it must mean a lot to those players that they have a football manager who is expressing this you know, very, very thoughtful defence of them taking a knee at the start of matches and who actually seems quite committed actually to England being a force for the generation of a new progressive identity in Britain. Well, England, I suppose, as he's manager of England. Yeah. And I mean, the comparison is in the US, the treatment of players like Colin Kaepernick for 
doing a similar gesture um, before before their games, you know, how they have been treated by owners of the NFL. You know, I don't know much about um, Gareth Southgate as a football manager, but I do know that he has the exact like gentle dad energy that I really gravitate towards. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I commend and I think especially coming off the back of the conversation we just had about Andy Burnham, um, I really commend him for, you know, showing up for his players and not being cowed. Um, by by reactionary dogma, you know he's that was a risk. You know, um, it's not necessarily what his base might want to hear, and he's showing courage where many of our politicians um, and journalists are really failing in this discussion. And you know, I think someone really needs to write something on why football is becoming at this particular moment. I know it historically has been at many times, but at this particular moment, it's becoming this kind of key key space of like oppositional political sense making you know from like the super league to marcus rashford to the dynamics that are playing out here i think it's that's very interesting i'm definitely not the one to write it but someone should i want to bring it back to that conversation again the language of snowflakes is just such projection they call us snowflakes for like wanting to talk about racism or wanting to change the root causes of racism Yet they're losing their minds because footballers are taking a knee. Like, like it's hardly a radical example of like anti-racist direct action. It's literally just the gesture of like stop racism in the most like vague and unthreatening terms. And I think it's why that kind of compromise that has historically, you know, over the past decade or two has sort of assuaged a lot of anti-racist mobilization. It's that compromise of representation as a replacement for radical change. And I think it's breaking apart, you know, it's it's losing cachet with the younger generations. And that's because of this dynamic that many of us have now seen that when you accept representation um, as a replacement for, you know, structural change, what you're actually giving into is this idea of like of shut up and play. You know, you're in the inner circle, whether it's a football team, whether it's, you know, in an organization, in an institution, in a political party, you know, you're in just shut up and play. Um, we don't want to hear what you have to say, especially when it challenges us or it involves transforming or changing things in any way. And it, it's the same in these elite universities, like we spoke about earlier. Um, you know, it's this idea of these elite universities will happily use, you know, students of color to pat themselves on the back for diversity, but then they'll punish those same students for actually bringing anti-racist perspectives into the university. And it's a sense of, you know, you can be here, but don't even think about trying to change anything. If you try, we're going to say that you're being inappropriately political, even though this whole damn thing is political. And especially booing players for taking a knee is itself a political act. It's a deeply political act. So I think that, you know, Gareth Southgate saying, you know, whatever my own values are, this idea of saying, particularly to players of colour, shut up and play um, you know, is is wrong. We have to make space for voices, especially marginalized voices. And it's very welcome solidarity from Gareth Southgate. And I think that's the power in it. The booing that we're seeing, it carries this sense of like, we don't really want you here. But if you're going to be here, then you have to be here on our terms and you have to be grateful for it. And Sometimes I think that, you know, and first of all, I think that's kind of representative of how a lot of people of color in Britain feel and um, the country is generally saying to them. But, you know, sometimes I think that people actually need a big dose of what they think they want. You know, what if all those players of color went on strike 
you know, withdraw their labor, have have your all white team who, you know, don't who whatever, who don't bring up these challenging things for you. And let's see how that goes. You know, I often say that like without rec- without recognition of the empire, the very English cup of tea is just a cup of milk and hot water. And, you know, who wants to drink that? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to drink that. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose one thing that I, I don't think Gareth Southgate is acting cynically here, but I mean, you could imagine a different manager would have allowed a division to be generated within the England football team between players of colour and, and white players. And then you have a situation where, you know, at the extreme, like you're saying, you do have players of colour who are saying, like, we're, we're not going to be part of this. And what, what Gareth Southgate has done very effectively is, is say, look, we are all one team. We are acting as one people. Yes, the taking the knee probably means something more to the players of colour, but every everyone in the whole squad has agreed we will be taking the knee at the start of matches. If you've got a problem, take it up with all of us as a whole. That's what's so what's so powerful about what he's done there. And it does make me even more positive. I, I, I'm not a massive football fan, but I do watch the, the international ones. And it does, it bodes well for Euro 2020, which is taking place in 2021. Dahlia, Gabriel, it has been a wonderful evening spent with you. Thank you. It's been wonderful spending the evening with you too. (laughs) Thank you so much for watching tonight's show. We'll be back on Friday. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.